Well, if you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 16. Today we're going to look at verses 6 through 15 together. We're going to see the movement and working of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we think about the title of the book we're studying, we need to remember. We, we, we know it as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, we need to remember that's, that's not the original title that Luke gave. It's a title that has come uh, to this book over time. It, many have made the argument that a more appropriate title might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we, we do see Paul traveling to different cities, and we see Paul preaching. But it's always the Holy Spirit that does the heavy lifting. It's the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of the spiritually blind and replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. You know, I've, I've heard before that Reformed confessional Christians such as ourselves don't care much about the Holy Spirit. And it's said that there are, there are other churches who will put more of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's true, but we do care very much about the Holy Spirit. Our shorter catechism provides some very helpful and clear ways in which we can rightly speak about the work or the the acts of the Holy Spirit. Our catechism tells us that we take part in the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit applies Christ's redemption to us. What does that look like? Well, the Holy Spirit, we believe, works faith in us. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ. The Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin and our misery. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. The Holy Spirit renews our wills. And the Holy Spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. See, all of the Christian life from beginning to the end is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We would not limit his actions to exciting, emotional, spirit-filled high moments. But all of the Christian life from beginning to end is one where we are empowered by the Spirit. Praise the Lord. That's how the Holy Spirit works. Creating faith in us, convincing us of sin, enlightening our minds, enabling us to embrace Christ. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Over and over again, the Holy Spirit is bestowing faith. Convincing folks of sin, enabling them to embrace Christ. Uh, This 
We saw in Pentecost, we've seen this with the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw this with Cornelius and Sergius Paulus. And today, we're going to see it with Lydia. The apostles will be witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But that witness only happens after the Holy Spirit has come upon them and empowered them. So what we see in Acts is a spirit-filled movement, a spirit-empowered mission. If there is no spirit, you have no church. Which is why you have some that would argue, title this book Acts of the Holy Spirit. Last week we left off in verse 5. A verse that reads, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and being increased in numbers daily. And again, Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing work. They are laboring. They're being used. They're going to get on board a boat and sail from Asia Minor to Europe. But the Spirit is the one providing the power. The Spirit is the one doing the multiplication, and we're going to see more of that today. But before we do, let's pray and then read our text. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that the Holy Spirit makes the reading of the Word, and especially the preaching of the Word, an effective means of convincing and converting Sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Would he do that work among your people this morning? In Christ's name, amen. Acts 16, beginning in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up, uh, when, when they had come up uh, to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. 
And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We've all had instances of closed doors, haven't we? I'm not talking about literal closed doors. I'm talking about you wanted to go this way, but you were stopped. You thought this might be a good idea, this might be really exciting, and then it fell through. You thought you might have an opportunity to move there, and then the plan just fell apart. That's what I'm talking about with closed doors, these opportunities and possibilities, whether it's related to school or job or relationships, plans for the future. We have these doors closed on us. You know, I'm going to be honest. In February of 2018, I wanted to be an associate pastor. In February of 2018, I was looking for a church that needed an associate where I could just hide in the wings and watch and learn, and the Lord closed every one of those doors. And in his, now what I can say is very kind providence, all those closed doors led Molly and me to you. Well, we see something similar today. The Holy Spirit is going to direct Paul and company through the closing of doors. Right? We're told that as they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, uh, they were forbidden or they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit forbade them to speak the word in Asia. Now, this is not the Asia we think of. This is not the continent, including China and Japan and Korea. Asia was a region of modern-day Turkey. If you're thinking of Turkey on the map, it's the region the furthest west. Asia was the region uh, that contained Thyatira, Lydia's hometown. It was also the region in which you'd find the city of Ephesus. And so we do know that Paul eventually will get to Asia. But not yet. The Holy Spirit would not allow them to enter Asia. The time wasn't right. And so then Paul said, well, we'll go north. We'll go to Bithynia. But again, we're told the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Another door closed. Now, how did this happen? I mean, did Paul receive a prophetic word Did he have some internal conviction? Did God speak to them in some extraordinary way? Was there a bridge out? 
or a rock, a rock slide that blocked the road? We don't know, and we aren't told by Luke. You know, I think that's really helpful for us. Because we wouldn't look for the exact same guidance. We're just told that God in his providence prevented them from going in these two directions. Their circumstances communicated to them, you cannot go that way. And imagine how frustrating this would have been for Paul. Paul is just the very, just driven, type A personality, hyper-focused. I mean, we saw he was willing to part ways with Barnabas because he didn't think John Mark would be a good fit for their mission team. And now all he wants to do is get to these areas and plant churches, but he keeps getting blocked. And the Lord does this for us. The Lord closes doors in our lives. This is how he guides us to where we are supposed to be. We, like Paul, most of the time, don't like this. We don't like plans changing or our plans running into a brick wall. And we're reminded that the Lord provides positive guidance as well as negative guidance. Positive guidance would be, go that way. Negative guidance would be, you can't go that way. And I'd argue that this negative guidance is the way God ordinarily guides his people. Negative guidance is how he will lead you. We have a closed door, closed door, closed door. Oh, open door. Let's head that way. But we don't like this. It frustrates us. We will believe that God is not answering our prayers. And yet this is God working. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary wrote this. He said, quote, We need to understand that closed doors, though they are a type of negative guidance, are nevertheless true guidance. Negative guidance merely keeps us from where we are not called in order that in God's time we might come to where God is calling us and where he will provide blessing. I love that. Negative guidance keeps us from where we are not called in order that in God's time we might come to where God is calling us and where he will provide blessing. I think that's what we see today in this text. And seeing the Lord working in this way, it'll, it'll help us in those moments of frustration. And he's keeping us from something to which he has not called us. That negative guidance is what funnels Paul and company to the coastal city of Troas on the Aegean Sea. They went there and waited on the Lord. And then we're told that positive guidance came. We see this in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, commentators have a lot of fun here trying to figure out who this 
man of Macedonia is, I think it's completely unnecessary and very far-fetched. But the funniest one I saw, uh, I could say this, uh, it's possible he saw a vision of Alexander, who was Alexander the Great from Macedonia. But that's, I I, I highlight that because I think it's silly. We don't know who this man was. He just has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. You know, one of the difficulties we have today, especially in our context, I think, in sharing the gospel with folks, inviting people to come and worship with us. One of the difficulties is there, there are a lot of people who don't believe they need help. Like, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I, 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 don't, I don't need help and I don't want you bringing me somewhere or telling me something that's going to maybe upset, upset my lifestyle or make me change my ways. I'm good. I don't have any need. It can be hard to reach those people with the gospel. They can be quite closed to it. They're prosperous. They're successful. And they're closed off. But those seem to be the ones that we usually will focus on. There's that just old temptation of Partiality that springs up. But what if we focused on those who were hurting and knew it? Those who were needy. Those who would honestly cry out, help me. When you look back at church history, the folks who are most open to the gospel are those who have obvious dire needs. So their need for a Savior is obvious. What if we helped them? Not only helped them, but also brought them the gospel. I think that could be a wonderful charge uh, to be reminded of for us to pursue those who are hurting. And by the way, this isn't limited strictly to financial hurt. We hurt in manifold ways. I think this is a good reminder of us to go to them and help and bring them near to Christ. As we read this, uh, you may have just skipped over a pronoun. Maybe it didn't jump out to you. In verse 10, we see a pronoun, we. Uh, so there's, that means there's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke. The writer of Acts has joined them. He's entered the timeline. He will travel with them to Philippi and stay there in Philippi. And later we'll see him join Paul again. But uh, Luke the physician has joined uh, the group. And Paul has this vision of the Macedonian man. And he relates it to the group. And we're told that they, they weigh the matter. They engage in discussion and they conclude that they should go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. You know, this is how we 
as believers ordinarily make decisions. I mean, the closed doors obviously limit us, but if we have the appearance of an open door before us, what what should we do? Should we just walk through? Well, I would say that, number one, we look to God's word and we say, would passing through this door be in opposition to God's word? If so, don't go through. And also, seek counsel from your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what they do. The group here concludes that they should go to Macedonia. You know, we've got a bad example of an open door and just blindly walking through. Jonah, Jonah had a boat um, that was available. There was a ticket with his, he bought it, got on it, but the problem was he was going in the complete opposite direction God called him to go. So we look to God's word and we seek counsels from our fellow believers. This week I was uh, really enjoying in my study my ESV Bible Atlas. If you don't have one, I would highly recommend a good Bible Atlas. It is so helpful, especially in Paul's missionary journey, just seeing where they're going. So Troas is on the like far west side of Turkey. It's a coastal city on the Aegean Sea. Ten miles north of Troas, I thought this was really cool, lays the ruins of ancient Troy, that city that was made famous in Homer's Iliad. And so that's where they are funneled to in God's providence. And from Troas, they sail to Samothrace. Samothrace is a small island in the northern Aegean It's got this big volcanic peak in the middle of the island that rises 5,200 feet above the sea surrounding it. And then they spend the night on Samothrace, and then the following day they sail to what we now know as Greece. It's amazing. They sailed 156 miles in just two days. The wind was at their back, propelling them towards Europe. And they land in... Uh, Neapolis, a city on the coast, and then from Neapolis they go 10 miles or so inland to Philippi. So God did not allow them to go where they wanted, and instead he sends them to Philippi. And we know a church will be planted there, a church uh, to whom Paul will write one of the most encouraging epistles in all the New Testament. This is a church that's going to be filled with people that Paul deeply loves. I want you to be reminded of the way Paul feels about the believers of this church that's about to be planted. This is from Philippians 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul loves these people, and God leads him to them. We're told that once they arrived in Philippi, they spend a few days there and then go down to the river. Now, we know Paul's ordinary practice whenever he got to a new city was to find a synagogue. Problem in Philippi was there there was no synagogue. The the rules for the synagogue uh, were such that there had to be 10 heads of households to form a synagogue. That was your quorum. Well, Philippi didn't have 10 Jewish heads of households. And so, in that case, the Jews were required to find a place outside of the city uh, near water where they could worship. And so, when Paul and his crew do not find a synagogue, they go outside of the city down to the river and they find a group of women worshiping God. So we're told they sat down and spoke uh, with these women. They brought uh, the gospel to these women. One of uh, those women there, we're told, was Lydia. It's a name we were familiar with. We're told Lydia was a seller of purple goods. In this day, dyes were very rare. They were very costly. I read somewhere that uh, the purple dyes that were used came from a mollusk, and it took about 8,000 mollusks, or collecting, collecting the ingredient from 8,000 mollusks was enough to dye one garment uh, purple. So this was a very costly business. It was a lucrative business. So here in Lydia, we have a uh, very successful, wealthy businesswoman, and she's also a worshiper of God. She's one of those Gentile God-fearers who gathered with the Jewish women because she'd been convinced of the truthfulness and majesty of the God of Israel. So Paul goes down to the river, meets with these women, begins to tell them of Jesus, and what do we read? In verse 14b, the last half of verse 14, we're told... The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. She hears about Jesus of Nazareth. She hears about his life and his death and his resurrection and him uh, being the promised Messiah. And her heart is opened. And she receives This word about Jesus. No longer is she learning Old Testament history, but she's she's hearing of the Savior and she is compelled to say, He died for me. His blood has covered my sin. And she's changed. God speaks through 
his word. And again, we have another example of how God ordinarily converts souls through the exposition of scripture. The word is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit opens people's hearts and draws them to himself. Lydia hears and she's brought to faith. Her heart is drawn to embrace Christ. She listens, she understands, she believes, and she agrees with what she's hearing. And we need to give credit where credit is due. It's not that Lydia was just a, it's not that Lydia was, oh, she's just a better woman than the rest, or she was just more faithful than the rest. No. It's that the Lord opens her heart. Uh, R.C. Sproul noted that conversion takes place when God intervenes and changes the disposition of our hearts. That's what happens with Lydia. Our God is the only one who can open our hearts. You can't cause your heart or any others to believe in Christ. You might be able to guilt someone into adjusting their habits or behavior, but you can't change the heart. This really hit me in youth ministry and was so extremely encouraging. I wish I had a wand where I could just point to people and say, regenerated, 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 but I can't. We leave that to the Lord. Like the sower, we faithfully sow gospel seed, throw it out to all, and the Lord is the one who brings life. He opens hearts, and he opens Lydia, her heart, and the hearts of those in her household. We read that they're baptized. They receive the sign and seal of being grafted into Christ. Lydia is given the sign and seal of regeneration, that there is new life within her, that she's been born again, uh, that she has been forgiven of sins, that she is surrendering to God by His grace to walk in newness of life. And this is something that the Lord has done. Notice also that salvation comes to the place of prayer. There's a group of women gathered down by the river to pray. They're praying, they're surely asking the Lord, give us more people that we could have a synagogue. We are so few. We want a presence here in Philippi. We want you to be honored. Lord, we need more laborers. Have you abandoned us? Will we spend the rest of our days just worshiping you by the river? And God responds by providentially blocking Paul and sending him straight to them so that the church in Philippi might be planted and so individuals like Lydia might be saved. amazing. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke 
across the Aegean Sea, 156 miles in two days, and find this group who was not expecting them just because the Lord wanted to save them. We then see the good works that are fruits of salvation. Now, what what do people do who are alive? Living people breathe. Living people breathe. Living people, their, their hearts beat. And Christians, those who have been born again of the Spirit, do good works. Lydia urges Paul and those with him, come and stay in my house. Remember, this is a very successful businesswoman in a very lucrative business. She says, come and stay at my house. And we're told that she prevailed upon them. She convinces them to come, to stay in her home. They'd maybe been staying in an inn somewhere in town, but she says, no, you must come and stay with me. What is mine is yours. My doors are open. Now, hardships, as we'll see next week, are coming to the church in Phil- or to Paul in Philippi. But this is a very encouraging moment. I want to end with this. We see clearly in this text God's leading of his people. You can't go to Asia. You can't go to Bithynia. I'm going to funnel you to Troas. And then I'm going to send you to a specific place so that a church might be planted in a specific city and specific individuals might be brought to faith. Remembering that God was leading them is what kept Paul going. Even after the closed doors, even after being stoned, even after parting ways with Barnabas, and who knows what other obstacles he faced. He knew that God was in control, God was leading him, God was fulfilling his perfect plan. And again, I want to point back to another example from the letter to the Philippians. Paul is in jail. And there are another group of ministers who are dancing on his jail cell. They, they love the fact that he is locked up so they can get, have their time to shine. And yet Paul says, he writes to this church in Philippi and says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That even though he's imprisoned, God is still leading him and he is still trusting his life and circumstances to God. And I would end with this quote. This quote is from G. Campbell Morgan. I hope the the name of the city means more to you now after today. He says, quote, it is better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without him. So I would encourage you to remember those words where it is better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without him. Wherever he leads you, no matter the frustration or disappointment, no matter how dark the road, it is better to be there with him than anywhere else without him.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you enable us to trust you and to rest in your providence, knowing that a a no from you or a a non-answer from you is not abandonment, is not carelessness or forgetfulness on your part. You may simply be keeping us from something to which we have not been called. And so, Father, enable us to trust. Enable us to see your kind hand leading and guiding us even on the hard days, the frustrating days, the incredibly sad days. Father, would we rest in your provision, knowing that wherever you bring us, it is better to be there with you than to be anywhere else apart from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.